0: We are still growing at 30-40% every year. We, we can fill some of the biggest stadiums in the U.S. with the people that get registered every day. Just choose one and, and tell me the capacity and we can probably fill it every single day.
1: Hello and welcome to Talking Additive episode 20, the last episode for season 2. After this episode, we will be taking a brief publishing hiatus until late March of this year while we put together the next season's worth of interviews and great content. Our story today focuses on the evolving role of 3D printing in CAD, highlighting Tinkercad and Fusion 360 from Autodesk. Our guest for the first half of our episode is Guillermo Melantoni, Senior Product Line Manager for Tinkercad and Fusion 360 at Autodesk. I met with Guillermo online to discuss the evolution of Autodesk Tinkercad. A groundbreaking software that has the unique achievement of having introduced 3D design, and in many cases 3D printing, to over 30 million users to date. In the second half of our show, we shift gears to chat with two individuals about FFF, Autodesk Fusion 360, and how these things fit into the changing manufacturing and advanced manufacturing landscape. First, we speak with Jonathan Odom, an inventor and community manager at Autodesk Fusion 360 out of Portland, Oregon. We then speak with Autodesk Fusion and generative design superuser Steve Cox, an Ultimaker community expert who has been a past guest on Talking Additive. And that isn't all. At the end of the show, stick around after the theme music for our latest Ultimaker Innovator Spotlight bonus segment featuring Eric Sederberg from 3D Werkstan, who together with his colleagues and allies helped to launch the grassroots PPE 3D printing movement last March with their hole-punched 3D printed protective visor project. This is one of my favorite Innovator Spotlight interviews and is well worth a listen. More on this and other topics on Talking Additive. I'm Matt Griffin and this is Talking Additive, a 3D printing podcast made possible by Ultimaker. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing in their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within manufacturing and on the factory floor? And what will be possible in the future? Welcome to the 20th episode for the Talking Addive Podcast, our final episode for Season 2. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, materials, and support ecosystem that enables professional designers, engineers, and manufacturers to innovate every day. Ultimaker prides itself on solutions that are flexible, productive, and scalable. Its global team of over 400 employees work together to accelerate the world's transition to digital distribution and local manufacturing. First up for our story, an interview with a dear friend of Talking Additive, Autodesk's Guillermo Melantoni, who will introduce the blockbuster online education software Autodesk Tinkercad to our listeners.
0: My name is uh, Guillermo Melantoni and I'm a senior product line manager at Autodesk. I'm the head of Tinkercad, and I'm part of the product management team for Fusion 360. The big moment for me was in 2012, when I got asked to join a a team that was emerging, which was the Autodesk consumer group. And the whole point of the consumer group was to, let's say, provide solutions and package for technology that was meant for professionals in workflows that could be used by non-professionals. And it was at the same time in which 3D printing went from extremely expensive machines in academia and an industry into... I would not say every home, but at least that was the hype at that time. We started seeing those in schools, and uh, you, you were part of that revolution, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. But, but at that point, that's when we started with one to 3 d the whole one to 3 d line. We started working with MeshMixer and Tinkercad. My first task on one to 3 d design at, at that time was to understand, okay, what's the path for somebody to understand 3D without having to understand all the idiosyncrasies of 3D modeling that you take for granted when you have been in the field. That's the other big point. All of us were already in the field somehow, and we assume a lot of things. I was always trying to make sure that people call those assumptions out. Part of the background, which is important to say, I've been involved in teaching for forever. So everything I've done in my life, I ended up teaching that. So in architecture, I was professor at university in Uruguay. I was teaching architectural design. I was teaching software. I was teaching history of architecture, theory of architecture. (laughs) Had I stayed in Uruguay, I would be some sort of tenured professor sitting on some institute doing research. And I ended up doing software. which I had never been exposed to building software in my whole life, but that's how things happen. Life goes in mysterious ways. But my point is that having been exposed to teaching CAD, right, people sometimes just don't realize. It just feels natural to them because they've been doing it for maybe 10, 20 years before. Of course people don't extrude. No, they don't. That was one of the main things for us when we started with 123D, and um, which then led into 123D Online, which led into then acquiring Tinkercad. That leads back to where I am today as both head of Tinkercad and in the way that life kept going, Tinkercad joined the Fusion 360 family. So I'm also involved in the development of Fusion 360, mostly on the platform side of Fusion 360, less around the specific features and workflows, but more around Having the platform working properly, all the connection with education and learning and creating a path from somebody that maybe gets started in Tinkercad and they do want to go into the path of product design and uh, how we basically light that path in a way that makes sense.
1: You trained as an architect and the history of your adulthood is the history of the transformation of architecture from a place where software was a tool, but maybe not the definitive tool to now when it's definitively where the work gets done. I was wondering if you could talk about that, because I mean, you talk about assumptions, but you also had just gone through being a part of the formative changes in architecture. And, and and
0: I'll start with one anecdote. I did one of my projects in 1990, probably 1991, and again, Uruguay. So if AutoCAD started in 1982, and it started getting famous towards the end of the 80s, I think I I, I did one of the first full projects on a computer without touching ink or or anything. And I got dinged about it. I I actually got told from somebody that was a well-known architect back in Uruguay in in academia that computers didn't have a feature in architecture. It it was a comment from a very respected senior um, (laughs) architect that that kind of didn't get it. Uh, But on the other side, it got me thinking. As I was starting to teach architecture, I, I did realize that any tool you use for anything brings a baggage, almost like an ideology. It brings restrictions and power. Even though I was already very involved in software at that time as a power user and as a teacher, I I actually had to almost ban the use of computers on the first iterations of a project, because if you get trapped on a tool, there's always the danger of the tool leading what you do based on what it can do, right? The the famous quote, if you have a hammer, the world becomes nails. (laughs) That same thing happened. If you trace architecture through time, you see exactly when some piece of software came up. Before or after Grasshopper, for example. It's fascinating. I've always been very interested in that aspect of software, in in, in the design process, what it empowers and what it restricts. And I want to believe I've been having that mindset for everything I've done after that. If you don't stop and think about the implications of what you do, almost like the theory behind it, I, I think that's that's a loss, right? If you don't do that on Tinkercad and everything, just just to understand what, what are the mechanisms that create a mindset. And that has to be part of your thought process. It's not just adding features.
1: How was it different the way that architects and designers with a, a big stack of professional tools were learning all these things that were coming out and changing paradigms and changing metaphors? How was learning and keeping abreast of that Different from how you wanted to then approach the consumer group learning challenges?
0: It's a good question. And I'll just quote some teacher that I met one Eastie. <laughs> he basically just expressed everything I thought in one very small <laughs> quote, which was when people work on, on other tools, it's all about learning the tool. And when kids work on Tinkercad, it's all about the project. It just hit me just like, you know, if it was a cartoon, it was like a ton of bricks falling on my head. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was just like, oh, that's exactly what I've always had in my mind. It's uh, it's especially when you when you think about the maker movement and uh, other time and and everything It's it's about you have a problem. You want to solve it. You're not trying to learn a tool just to see what you can do. It's not a tool for maybe for your job, right? I mean, because if you want to go into mechanical design, you know the tools that you need to understand in order to have a future and be marketable. Somebody that wanted to put a camera on their bike, they're not going to spend 40 hours learning any tool, right? They're just probably going to Google how how to fix this, or they're going to try to find a model somewhere out mm-hmm. there and maybe... Do a little bit of, of editing on, on, on that. If, if you're going to go into project-based learning or anything, um, especially elementary and middle school, it's not about the tool. It's never about the tool. It's just like on Tinkercad, it's all about the project. On other tools, it's about learning the tool. Period. Genius. Gold.
1: Can I have you define what Tinkercad is?
0: Mind to design in minutes which has been around for forever, still holds. It's an extremely fast and efficient way to take something that's in your head into a solution in minutes and seconds. It's a great tool for not only creating a final object, but also to understand the process that gets you there. It's a great storytelling tool in that sense. And it's a fantastic ecosystem that gets together 3D design, 3D printing, coding, and electronics into a single solution that can lead into a path on design and manufacturing. Even before that, it, it, it's a great solution for opening up minds into the world of STEAM education. You have the art side, you have all the other letters there, right? In, in Tinkercad, they're all there and that's it, right? So that's the soul of the whole thing. It's collaboration, it's a design, it's solving problems, it's critical thinking. In a tool in which you just focus on the project Because it's simple. It's online, so there's no IT person that's going to be making your life miserable. And it happens to be free, right? So there's no cost barrier for a school either. In, in terms of features, I think that a couple of things that your audience would care about is, first of all, if your audience is a teacher or or an IT admin or somebody from a district, we comply with every single privacy rule out there so your kids are safe. If they're under 13, COPPA and all of the regulations are observed, of course, it's a safe environment for any age and teachers have really good tools, you can onboard a classroom in less than a minute. No complications with account creation and everything. We just make it super easy for people to to, to get in and we're always building more and more things for teachers to to understand how to work on Tinkercad. If you Log into Tinkercad as a teacher because you define your role as a teacher and you'll get extra tools. The teacher's book, remember the student's book and the teacher's book? Well, Tinkercad has both those things. We offer lesson plans and content. If you don't know what you want to do, we, we, we just give you a lot of content that was created by a lot of really talented teachers. If the tool is amazing, but onboarding kids is a nightmare... Th- that's an objection already. So this is very simple. Kids learn it fast, kids enjoy it, but also you as a teacher can get control of it and understand how it works and also how to onboard kids very fast. In terms of features, on the 3D design side, it's it's basic aggregation based on shapes, right? The shapes go from very simple to, to very complex, but the complexity of the shape is not. It's not presented to the user. It's all under the hood, based on some types of JavaScript, like the shape generators, which is, a, again, a way of doing procedural stuff. Code blocks, again, in, in the spirit of understanding how to introduce coding. We're not teaching computer science, right? We are basically introducing a procedural approach to creation of shapes that can be reusable, and they can change based on changing some variables or changing some conditions of the code, which is, again, a great step Anybody familiar with Scratch for some basic things that they might be doing in Scratch can just keep going with this very, very easily. And in, in circuits, the same. We, we introduced uh, 2D electronics design and, and circuit simulation. We have from Arduinos to microbits for simulating microprocessors. It's almost like a first step into the world of mechatronics. That's, in a nutshell, what, what it is.
1: Would you be willing to talk to the huge climb in number of users?
0: We passed uh, 30 million users. That was a month and a half ago. And I made a prediction two years ago that we would end this year with 33 million users by end of January, and we're on track. Wow. And, and I expect 50 million by the end of the next year. We have a, a significant growth uh, year over year on monthly actives. We're still growing at 30 40% every year. And we, we can fill some of the biggest stadiums in the U.S. with the daily new users, That people that get registered every day. It's just choose one and, and tell me the capacity, and we can probably fill it every single day.
1: Do you want to talk about the process of bringing in Tinkercad and what you hoped for it, goals that you had?
0: At the very beginning, Tinkercad was just competition. I remember the first Maker fair in which I saw them. it was probably 2012. Uh, they actually had their booth next to ours. It's a tiny booth it was Kai and uh, and, and Aki and, and all the guys. I was like, oh this is cute but, but then I, I just say, okay let, let me try it. Let, let me try it. my process when I got Tinkercad was I opened it and I said hmm, that's just three tools right because it had just three tools it was group. Flip and uh, and align, and uh, and then maybe an hour later it was just like it has three tools. And a day later was like oh crap it has three tools. And look at all the stuff I did with three tools. Fortunately for us, <laughs> right, <laughs> they decided to 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 shut down. And out of the companies interested in, in them, we were the chosen ones. I would say. My f- my first reaction was let's not ruin it. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes, okay, we'll have this, but now, okay, let's add simulation, let's add this, let's add this. I mean, let's add stuff on top of it. All of a sudden, then we have any other tool we have in Autos already, so let's not do that. Let's really understand what makes this thing so good, and let's try to keep on that path. So, for example, the first feature we released on on top of Tinkercad, first thing we did was a connection to Minecraft. which made much more sense than adding more stuff, because what you could do with Tinkercad was already pretty humbling, truth to be told. Even until today, we have enhanced, I would say, hopefully, the the experience on many parts, but in in the 3D editor, kind of the main tools are still the same main tools from the acquisition, not because we don't have an idea what to do. We do have an idea what to do. Yesterday, we just added 3D annotations, just shameless advertising. Uh, We have a lot of things coming up, but always just keeping the mindset, what are we trying to do here? We are trying to make it all about the project. It has to be simple. It has to be easy to understand. When we had electronics, my first reaction was, okay, we have all these components now, but where's the potato and the lemon? There's a potato and a lemon. Just find me another piece of software that has simulation with a potato and a lemon for a battery. <laughs> right? Because we have to understand our audience. If you don't understand your audience, you're just creating yet another piece of CAD that will compete with, all the other pieces of card that are there. And not many people understand that. Mm. Because if, if you're already in a company that builds software, you get into the mindset, of, oh, we just need this feature. Why don't you have sketching? Why don't you have this? Because we don't need it. Mm. Because when you need that, you're, already, you're ready for the next step. And I don't want to put things here when the next step is there. And that was my whole point. I was the gatekeeper for not making Tinkercad into yet something else that we already have in the company.
1: Trace out for us the journey that Autodesk expects to see among its users, uh, going from first exposure through to mastering some of these career-defining tools.
0: One of the other questions I, 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 I always have in mind, and I always try the team to to think about, is when is somebody ready for Fusion? When is the moment in which, if you do that, you're not forcing the other person to crash in flames, right? When they just get to a, a place which is totally alien because it's different. Let's not even talk about the complexity of the more tools. It's just different in everything, in every single sense. So that that's one of the moments in, in which how can we understand behaviors that can lead to understand that that somebody is, is already more prepared? That process takes years, right? It's not something immediate. The to fusion, right? it's a moment in time, but there's a lot of stuff happening before that. And there's a lot that happened after that. Although we focus a lot on that moment, we, we, we need to prepare for that moment. We have to set the table, right, for for that moment. And my eternal joke that you already heard a couple of times, if this was football, I am the quarterback throwing, and then I'm running very fast on the side and trying to catch the ball on the other <laughs> side and trying to, to to touch down. So this this is what, what's happening, right? When we create material for teachers and, and the lesson plans and everything, you're going to start seeing more and more things that have some sort of, let's start in Tinkercad, let's take these things into Fusion 360. But again, it has to be done at the right time. If not... Yeah, we'll have somebody open in Fusion, but they're going to open, open it once.
1: I'd love to get your thoughts about the role of 3D printing in engaging students and learners in design on both sides of the, the push to Fusion.
0: The role of 3D printing on Tinkercad is, is pretty clear. That was the main point of Tinkercad when it was created. We've expanded from that. I always try to make the point that, that even if you don't have a 3D printer, Tinkercad is still relevant for for the user when all COVID started. There was a significant jump in the numbers at the beginning and then they started ramping up again but we were trying to understand okay what's happening in some classrooms that we're seeing especially here in the us where we're seeing less tinker happening and and talking to teachers the 3d printer is at the at the, at the classroom i don't cannot 3d print so what should i do and they was like okay no but you can do all these things oh really and and we started seeing those numbers moving up i don't say that's that's the only reason because everybody was trying to understand Distance learning and 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 yeah. and some tools were like slum dunks for that math and language, so all STEM activities were almost seen as side things for some classrooms, from some teachers and some schools, and uh, and that sort of get left aside a little bit. I think that those were the reasons to for, for the number. My point here is less about that and more about ticket has moved on from from just being the the tool for creating stuff for 3D printing Into so 3D printing is one of the outputs, I would say, one of the main outputs, we're still working with our partners, making sure that we are tightly connected to the 3D printing community, both in terms of vendors on hardware or repositories on, on communities just, just that, that aggregate 3D models. And that has not changed, mm-hmm. to be clear. We still make sure that every time you make a step in tinkercad whatever you do if it returns a mesh it it's 3D printable with supports or whatever but it's it's doable and all that has not changed but we have gone into the world of augmented reality we have gone into the world of electronics we have gone into different sites because at the end of the day i think that tinkercad is way more than a 3d modeling or or even three d design tool i think it is a mechanism for storytelling back full circle to, to my past as as doing renderings and animations for international competitions. I was working with studios, making sure that they could have the project represented the best way. And, and making a render or making an animation is less about your technique for putting lights. It's your technique of telling a story, just the same as photography, right? A good picture it not only has a good light, it's telling a story, right? The, the light is coming from the side, from the bottom, the back, and then you have some things different. Good storytelling is at the, at the forefront of anything you do. And at schools in particular, that's super important for the teachers, right? In many cases for project-based learning, the end result is important, but it's not the most important thing. It's the process, the most important thing. And then how the kid can um, articulate that process, that's even more important. If they ended up making a part that breaks, okay, tough luck. But what did you learn in the meantime, right? That's the most important thing. What did you learn in the meantime, too? That is something that's very top of mind for us. Yes, it's a 3D design tool. It's an electronics tool. You can get all together. You can send to Fusion. It's also storytelling somehow. So we, we just need to get that, that, that message clear because presenting a project and being able to articulate why you did it, how you did it, that that's something you also use in your life pitching something so it's yeah that that's that's the little bit of the change but again 3d printing is still super relevant for us i still see 3d printing as a great mechanism to understand that the move from the digital to the analog world look listen you can do that you might not need to buy that thing that you're looking for it's just you can make it yourself do it we have a huge culture of do-it-yourself in the US in particular. It's not not the same in every country, but here there's a whole culture of of that. I think it's just a continuation uh, of of that culture with even more powerful stuff. The Ultimaker 2 is still in the garage, um, (laughs) just next door. And every once in a while, we just jump into it and just build something just because we can, right? Because, uh, Because there's something that we need and because there's something that broke. Just passing that sort of mindset to my kids, it's also something that I I find very important. And I think that the teachers also get that very well. So why is is Team STEM important? Is it because we're gonna push more people to science and engineering? Maybe, but it's because it it creates a mindset, right? About critical thinking, about collaboration, about things that will help you if you are a lawyer, uh, a YouTuber, or a mechanical designer later. Make sure that people feel empowered to to do more. When my son gets into college or even into the work environment, it's going to be 2030, something like that. I don't know what's going to be happening there. Nobody knows. Yeah. So maybe Thanos snapped the finger and half of us are gone. Who, Who knows what's going to happen by then? My point is that we don't know (laughs) but what we know right now is we we want curious people we want people that understand that they have opportunities and they can look for stuff and 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 they they can just have that mindset i firmly believe and i'll say it in every single venue which i'm asked to talk is it's very important for us for me particular but for, for us as a team to be part of creating that mindset. That to me is, is the things that we bring to the table for, for a teacher out there. And again, as people just get more specific and more specialized into what they wanna do next, or maybe because they're doing, I don't know, first robotics or just moving deeper into design, we know exactly where to take you. Look, here it is and here's the path and how you can start moving your mindset from clay to blocks, to digital blocks, to reusable parts, to libraries, to procedural stuff to professional cat. That's a great story. I I really hope that people understand what we're trying to do. And again, filling one stadium per day tells me that maybe we're doing something well.
1: You brought up some of the COVID realities and and changes in how the the user base behaved as a group, but I was wondering if, if you'd be willing to spend just a couple of minutes just talking about ways that you've been seeing... Tinkercad be used in virtual and hybrid contexts, continue to drive forward, even though we're stuck in this weird situation.
0: One of the first things we did was ask ourselves, are we doing enough for the teachers? And again, I'm going to be defining teacher as at that point, in, at the beginning of COVID, normally a teacher is already overwhelmed, uh, overworked and underpaid. Then you also got extremely overwhelmed, trying to understand technologies, trying to understand Zoom understanding how to work virtually with the kids, understand how to even use the tools. And and I'm not talking about the super tech savvy teachers. I'm talking about the teachers that have a hard time understanding their phones. All of them had to be there. Who is at the forefront in technology? The early adopters, the the fast followers, the people that are are really interested. And then you have a a very long tail of teachers that are Doubting if it's the right move for them or if they are going to lose total control over classroom or everything And that's when you need to bring them and take them by the hand and explain to them. Hey, just don't be afraid This is good But all of a sudden all of them at the same time had to get into the new world and the first thing we did was okay Let's just stop everything we're doing Okay, what's missing right now? one of the things that was missing was The teacher walking through the desks Okay, so Let's make a very simple way on Tinkercad for the teacher to walk through the desk, through the virtual desk. So we, ha- we added a new dashboard in which they can see exactly what's happening in, 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 with, the, with the kids' designs. That was something we were going to be doing, but we we're going to be doing later because it was not top of mind for us. But all of a sudden, all our priorities changed because we had to work on those things. And um, the same with electronics. All of a sudden, electronics became this magical place in which, hey, I cannot send every student out there as a kid's with lights and microprocessors and all those things, but we can simulate everything from Tinkercad. And all of a sudden, Matt, it got used from elementary school into higher education. The month of May and April, in post-secondary, we saw thousands of teachers creating classes based on on, on tinkercad and, and and many of them based on the electronic side of tinkercad in post secondary we're not talking about elementary school we're talking about college so all of that made us reprioritize some of these things we added support for micro bits and, and we rushed into that one it was record how fast we could get that done because we we just okay let, let's stop all the other things let's do these couple things that we know that are going to be super relevant for our audiences because they are not on their maker space because they're not on the on the lab or wherever they, they were at school and it, it paid off in the same way that i'm telling you that we fill a stadium every single day with new users we are over a thousand new teachers every day too i, I always stay very much in touch with my my teaching sites i cannot go in, in 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 person to any classrooms but i still do webinars and stuff but when i used to go to classrooms and uh before March. I remember going to my son's class a couple of years ago to do some code blocks, and I had to create a classroom, so I became the the teacher of those kids. And with the features that we have in Tinkercad, I could actually see what they were doing later. And after a couple of months, there was one guy in particular that was still doing stuff on Tinkercad. It was the guy that you could call the problem guy in the classroom, the guy that always ended up on the principal's office. And uh, my point here is that sometimes with with, with some of the things we're doing here, we we can show up for people that that feel that they're lost. I I told that to the principal of the school and showed her what this guy was doing. And she she almost, I mean, I saw tears, right? Because she realized that, hey, there's a path here. It's not bad kids or good kids. It's just kids you didn't reach out correctly. As much as I like a paycheck, these are the things that make me really happy.
1: Thank you very much for being on Talking Additive today. Thank you. This is Matt Griffin, host of Talking Additive, Ultimaker's 3D printing podcast. This is a critical time for industry to adopt 3D printing within aspects of manufacturing processes, safety, and efficiency as a part of stabilizing and strengthening this field in the new global economy. Let's keep this conversation going, just like the 3D printing labs, machines, and teams all across the world that have remained open and fully operational even during these complicated times. Enjoy Talking Additive? We'd appreciate it if you would subscribe, and post a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer listening. And while our series is on hiatus until March, we encourage you to catch up on past episodes with some of our favorite Ultimaker Innovator list guests, including Matthew Forrester at L'Oreal, Captain Brad Baker from the United States Naval Academy, Matt Tarosian from Jabil, and more. We will now return to episode 20 to speak with Autodesk Fusion 360 Community Manager, Jonathan Odom.
2: My name is Jonathan Odom, and I'm a Community Manager for Fusion 360 at Autodesk. One of the cool things about Autodesk and Fusion in particular is that you're encouraged to make your own job. So there's a very broad definition of what the company wants from you. And then you get to fill in the blanks and figure out what that means. For me, it's uh, kind of all over the map. So I spend a lot of time talking to customers and figuring out what they're doing with Fusion. I write stories that tell what they're doing. I do consultancy kind of stuff. So I'll sit down with somebody and run them through Fusion and help them with a workflow and make sure they're successful with it. I make content. So I make projects that highlight what Fusion can do. Also what manufacturing can do. Something you and I have worked on together before with the, the factory, one of these in-person events.
1: And then I also do educational content. Um, How did you first encounter 3D printing and, uh, and 3D design?
2: I was homeschooled. I grew up in rural Louisiana, middle of nowhere, and school is a pretty loose term. I spent a lot of time just left to my own devices playing around, and I loved to make stuff when I was a kid. I started working at my cousin's electronics factory when I was like 13, a part-time job thing. I went on to study engineering in college, did mechanical engineering for a couple of years, and then switched to architecture. My first stint into really being trained in 3D design so was architecture, and I quickly dove into software. I've always been a tool junkie, whatever that means. So AutoCAD was first, then I got into Maya, popular in the um, architecture world at the time. A lot of people were experimenting with it to come up with new forms and that sort of thing. And I dropped out and joined the circus. I was in the movie business for a while doing um, special effects and animatronics. And then when I went back to school, I went to a really avant-garde experimental school in Los Angeles called SciArc. They're famous for having all of the latest technology. I started in 2006 there, and they had a couple of different kinds of 3D printers and a CNC machine and a laser cutter. I spent a lot of time in school there, another one of these places that encourages experimentation and try something new. You're not really expected to follow the the normal path of education, and architecture education in that case. My first encounter with it was a project I was doing where I needed to make a model. And what I realized when I 3D printed these parts, it was like a little space frame structure with these little panels on it. And I 3D printed the panels. And then I realized that, oh, it doesn't need to be a panel. I'm still thinking in terms of something that's cut out of a sheet at a factory or something like that, instead of the new possibilities that come with it. Literally any form you can imagine can be made with this thing. I was always interested, even when I was an architect after I got out of school, very interested in details and small scale things. The cabinetry or the door handle, if you can make a custom thing like that stuff was always way more interesting to me than the building as a whole. And so I went down that track. And yeah, 3D printing is a big part of that, especially when I started to get into my own side work that led me into getting to Autodesk in the first place.
1: How do you introduce Autodesk in terms of its role in interfacing with 3D printing?
2: Uh, so Autodesk, the big idea is we make software for making things. If you've been in a building that was built since probably the late 80s, if you've you know driven a car, if you've been on a plane, if you've watched a movie that was made in the last 20 years... Autodesk has touched that somehow started with AutoCAD. That's a 2D, then 3D drawing tool, modeling tool. And then through over time, we've developed new products and acquired existing startup companies and wrapped them into the fold. The grand vision is to have basically have a one stop shop to bring you from concept to a finished product all in one ecosystem now when it comes to 3d printing there are different uses for it so there's manufacturing there's also uh, media and entertainment netfab was a a company that we acquired that is a 3d printing slicer that has a lot of unique features that are really specific to manufacturing that other slicers don't have for example you can identify a surface And then give it a fill pattern that gives it certain structural properties and you can simulate that stuff within the software. Uh, There's an added manufacturing space within uh, Fusion 360 that's fairly new. We brought in some of those tools from NetFab into Fusion 360 to integrate that stuff. This is really specific to manufacturing. There's another product called Within Medical. It's basically for orthopedic implant design. When you're talking about an an orthopedic implant, say a hip or a knee or something like that, you have to go down to a microscopic level to make sure the, the surface is designed such that bone will bond to it or cartilage tinkercad is the top of the funnel a kid can sit in front of that and put shapes together and then send to a printer. And there you go. You could think of it as going from that to a metal 3D printed part in, in NetFab or something. I have an Ultimaker in my garage and I design stuff in Fusion 360. I usually just use the Ultimaker slicer to, to make the parts because I can trust it, especially if I'm using Ultimaker materials, it's, it's totally predictable. But there's another thing I should mention though, Autodesk, we're always looking really far into the future as well. At Autodesk in particular, Fusion 360 in particular, we're working under the assumption that the future of manufacturing is getting away from this model Model where you're making millions of a thing a few thousand miles away and you pack it into freight containers on a ship and float it across the ocean and unload it in Los Angeles. 20% of the things never see the light of day and they end up in a landfill. What you really think is going to happen is that manufacturing is going to be at a smaller scale and it's going to be closer to the end user. And we're already starting to see this. So you can make a really complex thing in, in Tinkercad, port it into Fusion 360, and it just comes in as native geometry. A lot of people are using it, it as like a sketch tool right? So the expectation is you start with Tinkercad and then you graduate to Fusion 360. But what they're finding from the data that we have access to is people are continuing to use it. So they'll go into Tinkercad and just quickly throw something together, put a bunch of little parts together, and then, okay, I think that's going to work. And then they'll move on to Fusion and fill in the details and make something that's more um, more precise, that has more features, that's more complex, right? They make a good pair. It's an interesting phenomenon.
1: In industrial context, the notion of making software that is really powerful uh, and really fast if you've mastered it, but a very steep learning curve. That seems to have changed in recent years. And Autodesk has been particularly the example people point to when they show different routes to learning. I would love to get your thoughts on what you've seen over the last couple of years with Fusion and other Autodesk products of the pathways to learn.
2: So the thinking with Fusion basically was, how do we capture the future engineers and designers and, and so on. How do we give them the best possible product? And the way you do it is you start from the ground up. You throw out all your assumptions about how was supposed to work. And you say, if I was just like a, a kid, if I was 12 years old and you put me in front of a piece of software and you wanted me to make, you know, a, a solid 3D model, well, how would you do that? What, what would it look like? That's a big idea. When you go through the Fusion interface, it's set up in a way that's pretty logical. If you think from left to right, you're pretty much following That way you're gonna start with something over here on the left and then you're gonna filter your way over and then You'll end up with something probably over on the right when you get to the end of whatever the process is You're doing another part of it is it's on the cloud being cloud-based gives us all this metadata so we can see Okay, when people click this they usually go here next and then that tells us something about Okay, should how do we make it easier to go from that to that? Can we anticipate that you're gonna go to this? And if we can anticipate that, then maybe you don't even need to click anything. Again, the the fact that it's on the cloud means that we can update it really quickly. That can be a point of contention, right? Because you're used to something working a certain way, all of a sudden we come through and say, you know what, we actually think it's gonna work better this way and I'm sorry, I'm gonna change things a little bit on you. Something we've found though, is that the pushback when you change things doesn't seem to be quite as extreme with Fusion 360 as it does with some other legacy products. I don't know if that's because the user base is smaller compared to AutoCAD. I don't know if it's because it's just a different persona. I'm not really sure. It might be just that people are used to change now and they expect it. And as long as things don't break catastrophically and they can still do their work, then they're okay with some shifts here and there. You sort of have to get rid of those assumptions and try to start over and ask yourself, what could this be? How could it be a better experience? And you got to take some risks with that too.
1: What role does 3D printing have in learning CAD from your experience?
2: I mean, I think it's a crucial part of the prototyping phase of everything. You can be in the computer all day long and spend a, a tremendous amount of effort in getting something just right. All the features are correct and everything fits together and all looks great on the screen. And then you 3D print it. And you bang your head against the wall because you realize you can't fit a screw in here because there's things in the way. You're seeing like a 2D representation of a 3D thing, but it's not the same thing as holding something in your hand. That's part of it. Another part of it is there's nothing more important than working with real things. There's a temptation to spend all your time in the computer and see it all virtually and, you know, because it's, it's hard to make stuff before... 3D printing was available to everybody. You didn't really have much of an option. You'd have to go into a shop and use a mill and make the thing and all that stuff. But now there's no excuse. I mean, just print print a scale copy of it. Just try it out. See what happens. When I was in school, I spent a lot of time in the shop, made a lot of prototypes, and I, I chose projects where I would have to make full-scale parts of things, right? I made these little hard shell cabin things that had that had these facets on them and i had to figure out how all the parts went together with that stuff i was in special effects too and animatronics so i'd I'd made a lot of things with with my hands so when i got into architecture i didn't make those same kind of mistakes i could go and talk to the contractor and I, i knew what he was saying i could understand that oh okay the problem he's dealing with is has to do with the way these assemblies come together and most of the people that get into architecture, if they don't have that experience, you're just drawing stuff. It's a really hard road getting through and getting these people to trust you and getting to a point where you trust yourself. I think 3D printing, it's a bridge to that. It's probably the best tool you have in your toolbox.
1: What advice for people at these companies who want to w- want to pick up 3D printing and Fusion 360?
2: Ignore all the things that are going to distract you and that you don't really need to know yet while you're trying to, to work on stuff. Learn by doing much more so than learn by acquiring skills. If you've got a project in mind, something you want to do first, focus on that and try to make that happen. And let whatever other media you're consuming that's going to try to answer certain questions, let that inform the project you're trying to do. You don't remember things that you don't need to remember. And you don't know you need to remember this little obscure command. You don't know you need to remember what the name of that thing is. If you're working on something, you're trying to make something, you're going to remember what you did to make those different parts because your your brain will recognize that as something that's important. It's a good hack. And make things as much as you possibly can. Anytime you get, the more you practice this stuff, the more you make things, the more you're going to learn. There's this cliche, good artists borrow, great artists steal, but it's the same kind of thing. Copy things that you think are good. Reverse engineering is a great idea. Look around your house and just see, what do I need? Maybe there's something broken, a window latch or something like that. Take the thing down, measure it, try to reverse engineer it, do that infusion, 3D print it. See how it behaves. Is this plastic going to be good enough? Is it? Is this this density going to do the job? Will it break off if I do this? How's it going to do in the sun? Like, You got to just practice with this stuff all the time.
1: Thanks again to Autodesk Fusion 360 community manager, Jonathan Odom. We'll now leap partway across the world to reconnect with 3D technology consultant, Steve Cox, a past guest on Talking Additive and a hardcore fan of Autodesk Fusion 360 and generative design tools. Thank you very much for joining again. It's always a pleasure to have you on Talking Additive, bringing your expertise. The the topic of this episode is on the intersection of, of CAD and FFF with a special focus on Autodesk and the the various uh, technologies that they represent. And we have a number of perspectives from Autodesk. Uh, So we thought it'd be really exciting to get you back in the show for this episode, because we know you are a serious user and also a trainer who has collaborated with uh, Autodesk in the past. Why don't you kick it off by reminding listeners of who you are and your background?
3: So I'm Steve Cox, and and I'm a 3D Technologies Consultant. I'm I'm an independent consultant. Uh, I have my own company called Amphory Consulting, and that's basically what I do. I kind of work at the intersection of 3D Design and FFF, which is fantastic because I think that's the subject of this particular podcast. And it's a real pleasure to be invited back to, to this latest episode.
1: What brought you to Autodesk Software? And what is your relationship as a trainer with the Autodesk ecosystem?
3: I think my journey's interesting because when I first got into the 3D printing arena, although I came out of industry, I didn't have actually any CAD skills to speak of. I'd been an engineering manager and I had a team of people doing CAD for me rather than me actually being capable of doing it myself. So... When I left industry and got into 3D printing, I I came without those vital CAD skills. And I think if it's one thing that FFF has done, it's released the genie from the bottle in terms of being able to make things so much more easily. But you can't afford to throttle the creativity and innovation that can drive by making it so difficult to generate the designs in the first instance. And I clearly was in that, that position initially where Yes, I could see the benefits of FFF and what it could do and where it's going to lead us. But I didn't have those CAD skills to be able to make um, the most of all of that. So I searched around for a CAD program that I I could understand how to use and and fell across Fusion 360, which was probably one of the, the, the best accidents of my life in terms of where it's led me since.
1: So tell me about the journey that you took from somebody who obviously has a long career in working in design development and, and manufacturing and is well aware of the processes that are underpinning things to not only picking up Fusion 360 as a tool to use, but reaching the point now where you do a lot of training and and are in fact certified to, to, for education.
3: Jaguar Land Rover, where I worked when I was uh, out in industry, we used very high-end CAD systems that were very difficult to pick up. A typical training um, regime for the type of CAD system we were using there was a one-month basic training course and you walked out of that training course with a folder that was so thick you could use it to reach the top shelf for a book. And the reason for that is because I think so so much of that type of CAD has got hidden commands in it and things that you really need in-depth training to be able to use, uh, and, and that makes it a little bit impenetrable. Even after that one-month basic training, people would take around six months to actually be proficient in using it. So that seven-month training and learning curve. I think it's a little bit out of kilter with how easy it is these days to pick up so many other things. No one really wants to spend seven months learning how to use something. So the first thing I really noticed when I came across Fusion was the fact that it seems so easy to pick up. And I think that's been proven out in the training that I've done since because I see how easy or not people pick this software up and students pick it up fantastically quickly. And I think that's a real key validation that Autodesk are on the right path in terms of making CAD so much more accessible with Fusion 360. So much easier to pick up. I can typically get the principles of Fusion across in a day's training, at least so that people can pick it up and use it and start to become fairly productive with it. It's become so deep and so multi-layered these days that you still now need more days of training if you want to learn some of the more powerful features. But in terms of being able to generate 3D CAD and and get started in bringing your ideas to life, a day is generally all that's needed to, to get people to that level that long learning curve, although you could be fast at the end of it, you were maybe in a little bit of an elite group in in being able to do that. There's many people out there who've got great ideas, but they just can't bring them to life because they don't have those skills. And I think some of the things that are going on now, I think really are starting to democratise CAD in a way that more people can access it. They can use it. They can bring their ideas to life. There's a lot of engineers outside of the design office who still need to actually manufacture things. And therefore they need the skills to be able to do that. And in my own consulting, there's a number of companies where I've been in and taught Fusion 360 to engineers who are very close to the shop floor, and obviously much closer to the problem than maybe the design offices. That gives them the ability to turn around a design that's fit for purpose quicker because they understand the problem better that they're trying to solve. So rather than communicate that to a design office and get them to interpret their idea, they're able to do it directly. And I think that makes a a big difference to how quickly you can turn a successful design around. And and I think it, it, it doesn't matter whether it's training and education or to seasoned industry users. I see the same basic level of pickup of Fusion 360 being really rapid. Once you've given people just that first few seeds of how they can create something, They very quickly get enthused by it and and really run with it. And I think that's because they just all of a sudden see, actually, this isn't so difficult after all. Once that fog and mist has been lifted, I think the the pickup of, of CAD, particularly using Fusion 360, can be really
1: rapid. How are you seeing the role of additive manufacturing intersecting with learning of CAD? You made a good point earlier, additive takes the genie out of the bottle and you can do all these amazing things, and so let's not have making those designs be a blocker you're working with.
3: An interesting question, especially if we think about if we didn't have additive manufacturing, if it hadn't exploded at the beginning of the the last decade, would that have driven CAD along and and the progress in CAD along as quickly as, as it has done if it hadn't emerged? I think that's, a, that's an interesting thing to, to think about. I think that CAD has been brought along by the fact that FFF has emerged or additive manufacturing has emerged, especially desktop machines, because I think that ability to design and then make less than one or two feet away from you is just incredibly powerful. I think additive manufacturing has really dragged CAD along in terms of where it's going. I think some of the computational changes that have emerged cloud computing is certainly a big element of fusion 360 and also helps people on board with some of the really powerful features it has to offer without them having to invest heavily into the hardware in terms of the computer that they use to run it there's computing advances you've got additive manufacturing dragging cad but then probably CAD is picking its own kind of furrow as well in terms of adding more features, especially analytic features. One of the things i emphasise in the training that I run is for all the fact that we've got 3D printing where you can turn your idea from the screen to a physical part really quickly, don't miss out that opportunity to check it out virtually beforehand because you're going to ch- potentially save yourself some time and some money if you spot a problem in the virtual world rather than actually make a physical prototype and then spot that issue. I still see a lot of education users being taught design in a very traditional here's a 2D technical drawing kind of a way. This is how you need to be thinking about your design. And it's not because now 3D CAD is mastered. There's no point envisaging that design in 3D in your head then translating it into a 2D technical drawing and then try and turn it back into a 3D part. If you can see it in 3D in your head, get it in 3D on the screen and then go straight to digital fabrication. That kind of 2D element for me is, yeah, there's a place for it. You still need 2D drawings for maybe quotation, maybe inspection. But for me, 3D CAD is master now, not 2D technical drawings like, like existed so many years ago.
1: And that has to be a major difference, not just in terms of you th- thinking about what your delivery goal is, but also what that final part represents. It's not just a profile. What are some ways that, that having a 3D result instead of a set of 2D uh, profiles means for you as, a, as someone looking to help companies solve industrial problems?
3: I think it helps in terms of the visualisation of, of the design. You can instantly see, does that design match that image that you've got you know, in, inside of your head? But I think where I found it really powerful is the ability to communicate that 3D design to the client or customer or person I'm working with. So it's not just about me seeing that design, it's about other people seeing that design in true 3D. And, and really getting a much better appreciation because it's not everyone that you can hand a 2D technical drawing to and they will understand what that product would look like if it was made in in, in the real world. For instance in Fusion 360 you can send them a very simple browser link and they can open that up and actually see the product that you've designed in 3D, turn, turn it round, cut sections through it, explode it, do all kinds of things. And all they've needed was a browser link in an email or a text message or a WhatsApp message. Anything that you can communicate, a short message, will give them the ability to see that design in true 3D. Many of the clients that I've worked with, I've never actually met. And I think that's quite amazing that you don't need that physical kind of meeting time kind of arrangement anymore to to actually make sure that your design has met the client's brief. You can now do so much Backwards and forwards, just using some of these 3D tools, that it it completely eliminates that need sometimes to even meet people.
1: The 3D model in a visualization becomes the the tender, if you will, becomes the means of communicating.
3: And, And the really interesting conversation that you have is the first time that you send a client their design in the 3D visualization because that's the critical point of which either you've got their brief and you've interpreted it correctly and designed it correctly, or you've completely misinterpreted it, or they've maybe not communicated it correctly in the first place. So that first time they see that design in true 3D, that's the acid test. So it's always an interesting you know, first conversation once that, that first draft of the design's completed.
1: But isn't it nice that's happening in a non-destructive digital design instead of after a manufacturing process when... You're sitting there, ten thousand, fifty thousand, eighty thousand, you know, dollars in the hole, with a result that's not the intended one. Exactly.
3: It's so powerful, and so is the ability to to communicate with teams in very distributed ways. One of the things I talk about in the training is that design, product development, it's always been a team game. You may have that fantastic idea, you know, stood in the shower or sat in the bath. But you're not going to realise that and take that to market without working with a lot of other people. That's always been the case. But what has changed, I think, the landscape that's changed in the last 20, 25 years is that those teams no longer may be in the same you know, building as you, the same office as you. They might not be in the same country as you. They might not even be in the same time zone as you anymore. And that's the effect of globalisation. So you're talking now to to much more distributed teams across the world and how do you do that effectively and communicate your ideas and make sure you get to a successful endpoint when often a lot of that face-to-face communication can't take place. And there's some fantastic tools out there and, and Fusion's got some of them embedded into it that allow that kind of collaboration. And I've worked on teams in Fusion distributed across the world, so which, which is a fantastic opportunity to have been involved in.
1: How are, are you seeing changes in functional prototyping from the intersection of CAD and 3D printing?
3: I think we're almost sprinting through functional prototyping now into end-use parts. I think we've gone very quickly from it's all about primarily a visual prototype just to get the idea of the physical form and turn it over in your hands and think, is this the right kind of product? Very quickly, because of the developments with materials, got through the stage where those prototypes can now play a part in in physical validation of the product we now understand how to use these parts as end use uh, applications and i think that's been the the huge step on the gas that i've seen in the last 2 years so many more people now willing to deploy fff parts into an end use application it may only be a jig or a fixture or an assembly aid or but that's still an end use item and it's still just as valid it's not a prototype it's something that's used and earn its keep on the production line that's been a a real um, rapid turnaround from where this the industry of uh, 3d printing was four years ago maybe even
1: that's a really helpful model thank you for sharing that Mm -hmm. so i just want to touch one last thing what are your thoughts on the role of additive manufacturing and 3d cad in education contexts
3: I think from what I've seen in the time that I've been working in this space, especially around that education arena, I see 3D printing as unlocked creativity and innovation in young people like maybe no other tool. And And that's probably led the, the CAD development on, which we've talked about already. I think that ability to make so close to where you're designing and so quickly from what you're designing, turning that into a physical product in such a short space of time, Now you can do that on a desktop printer right next to you. I see students really stepping up in terms of their creativity and their innovation because they have that ability to experiment and explore and examine new ways of designing and making things and new products and new ideas because that that make element has, has been massively unlocked by 3D printing. I think in terms of the tactile element, I think one of the fascinating things that FFF printing has done for me is appreciate much more what generative design does and the kind of forms that it outputs. Because when you see a generative design on the screen, it's still difficult to really grasp some of the the kind of forms and shapes it's created. But, you know, I often encourage people, don't leave it on the screen. Take it out, print it, and then examine it. And then you'll get a much better appreciation of what generative design does. I've got one or two designs that I've printed, and as soon as I've picked them up, I've thought, I can understand the biomimicry going on in this. I can see the mirrors to nature. You In know, some designs I've got, you can see a pelvic structure there. So it's created a, a very efficient structure, but it, it has real overtones of a pelvic structure in a skeleton of a human form. There's other designs where I can see tendon type of structures in place. So the biomimicry that's in generative design is is fascinating to unlock with physical prints using FFF. So, as I say, it's one of the things I often encourage people to do, you know, don't just leave the design on on the screen, print it out, and then you'll get a much deeper appreciation of what this piece of software is actually doing.
1: Thank you so much, Steve, for joining, for Talking Additive again. Always happy to have your, your perspective. that has been my
3: pleasure, Matt. And I look forward to all the future Talking Additive episodes because I personally learn something from every one of them.
1: And that is a perfect flattery to encourage me to bring you back to the show many times. <laughs> we hope that you have enjoyed our 20th episode for the Talking Additive podcast, the evolving role of 3D printing in CAD, featuring Tinkercad and Fusion 360 from Autodesk. Stick around after the theme music for our Ultimaker Innovators Spotlight featuring Erik Sederberg from 3D Verkstan in Sweden. If you have any questions about any topics covered during this episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post on Twitter or LinkedIn to hashtag Talking Additive, all one word. This is the last episode of Season 2, and the series will be on a short hiatus until we return in March for Season 3. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at TalkingAdditive.com. Thank you again to Guillermo Melantoni, Jonathan Odom, Steve Cox for joining us for episode 20. Our series producer is Hanna Gabrielle Talkini, studio manager David Roberson, executive producer Nuno Campos. Music and episode sound mix by Brian Scary and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbirds Custom Music and Sound. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening. Psst, wait, don't leave yet. In Talking Additive episode 18, we introduced a recent project that is near and dear to our hearts, the Ultimaker Innovators List. If you haven't yet had a chance to explore this online project, Head over to ultimaker.com forward slash innovators, the list that we unveiled on December 15th, 2020. This project will be an ongoing Ultimaker wide effort to put the spotlight on individuals or groups across the world who we believe are using 3D printing to transform the way people work, think, and live. Throughout the year, we will return to this list to highlight more of these Ultimaker Innovators interviews as we advance our way towards the launch of our 2021 Innovator List at the end of the year. Today, our innovator spotlight falls on Erik Sederberg from 3D-Verkstan. My colleague Anders provides the introduction.
4: Altimaker reached out to ask about innovators that I thought would be good for this project. And quite quickly, I decided to nominate Erik Sederberg from Sweden. I know him quite a few years. I would say he is innovating with the printers on all fronts. He has so many projects where he is extending the possibilities of what you can do with 3D printing. But the main reason I chose him was because of his face shield project where he helped create and standardize on face shield used at the start of Corona so that medical staff could be safer until countries could produce their own. This would not have been possible without 3D printing, of course. And this is the type of things that Eric does a lot of other times as well, but this one stands out. I think it's important to celebrate innovation in all fields and businesses, of course, but especially in 3D printing, because 3D printing is, in the eyes of a normal person, it's a new technology and it has so many possibilities, and we have barely scratched the surface. So celebrating the innovation makes it easier for everyone else to see the possibilities, and from that we can hopefully create better faster optimized processes and create products that helps us in our future as well as also helping our world in general with creating things that are better suited for their purpose and also creating them on site instead of producing them and then having to transport them all over the world
5: hi i'm eric i am a co-owner and cto of Friedewerkston. 3D printing distributor and reseller in Scandinavia. I'm also the co-founder of Stockholm Makerspace and Maker by Heart. I help people make stuff real. My first contact with 3D printing was probably somewhere around 2007, 2008, mainly in form of uh, seeing all the interesting developments in the Repra project and following it along. I was already then quite into digital fabrication, both through my then work running large format printers and servicing them, also as a hobby, where I have built myself at that time two CNC machines and started my third, I think, about about that time. I do have a focus on knowledge and competence, and I'm very curious by nature. So I love to gather all this knowledge to be able to spread it and to be able to transmit it into other organizations and other people to help them with their specific problems. By that, create better solutions and make them able to innovate themselves in their field. So the face shield project really started in early March. It was around the time where we saw all these news headlines, lack of PPE, shortages, supply chain problems. Everyone in the world wanted certain kinds of stuff and that stuff wasn't there. Long lead times, supply chain problems and the stuff not coming out of China, being stopped in other countries. We had all of these news stories just in a few days. We got this question when we're talking at the office. Is there anything we can do to help the situation? Is there something where it would make sense for 3D printing to be a part of this? Uh, And what can we do to relieve this current situation? So what we did was that we said, let's take a look at at these applications, see if there's one where it would make sense to work with the... 3D printing technologies that we, that we work with, and uh, pretty fast we identified that a simplified face shield could be a product where 3D printing could make a real difference in the world at the time. This was about using the strengths of 3D printing, the short lead times, the fast response time, the rapid iterations, to bring something to the people that needed it the most and do it faster than all the lead times in the traditional industry could do it. And by that, creating a bridge or a stopgap solution, if you will, until the industry caught up. We never saw it as something where 3D printing should make millions and millions for years. We have other manufacturing techniques that are great for mass producing stuff in the millions, but they take time to start up. It takes weeks, even months in some cases. We sat down, me, myself, and uh, Three of my colleagues, we looked at how can we do this in a way that would make sense for 3D printing, that would be material efficient, uh, would be fast to print, and would be easy to assemble and uh, easy to use in real life. We started with some different directions, and one of the big hurdles we found out was how do we attach a clear sheet of overhead transparency or some other kind of transparent film, like a visor, to create the face shield. Uh, And how do we do that in a reliable way that does not require any special tooling, that can be done easily in a lot of places uh, and that is not relying on super high precision parts out of the 3D printer since we wanted to be able to print very fast and not worry as much about tolerance of different machines. This iterative process took about 24 hours until we had the first versions that actually worked. During that time, I think we probably went through 10 iterations of three different tracks. This was all enabled by each of us having our own Ultimaker at home. So each time we felt that an idea was viable enough, we just exported an STL, threw it on the printer, and half an hour later, we had something we could try on. Some of them did not work. Some of them didn't fit well. Some of them felt terrible to have on their head. And we realized pretty soon that the techniques we tried out to clip the transparent sheet in place just didn't work well enough. During that evening, I was looking at different ways to get the transparent sheets on there. And I just saw a hole punch on my desk. and was like, hole punches. If there's something that we can probably find in every school, organization, hospital, especially the older ones, they definitely have some overhead transparencies and a hole punch. So that's what we started out from. Uh, I made some prototypes and we're able to make something that sat very rigidly. So you punched with a hole punch, two different sets of holes and just pulled the transparency over it. We were able to include some elasticity in the visor frame by printing a little inwards bend in it. So it would spring around the tightening of the transparency and hold it tension. And by that, we actually achieved an incredibly sturdy fitment of the transparency to the face shield. When we were happy with this design, we took uh, a couple of these to our local hospital. We brought them in and said, hey, what do you guys feel about this? We're not experts in making face shields before this. We never tried. But they immediately pointed out some things that we haven't thought of. For example, they needed a way to be able to secure it on their head. So if they were leaning over a patient, for example, the face shield cannot fall off. So we curved the ends in the back to be able to just put a rubber band or a hair tie across it. All this while only adding like about a gram of extra material. So we went back, we iterated a few more times here. We were really hunting grams here, not just because we don't want to use material, but since we wanted to be able to make it fast. One of the design goals we did when we made it was that we made it all uh, a multiple of a line width thick. So we intentionally designed it so the nozzle would travel the minimal amount possible having even lines to put down when you printed it. In the end, we had a design that we were able to squeeze out in just over 10 minutes for each. So we made a build plate uh, of two in 22 minutes. Uh, And that was the reliable speed. Uh, And just that local community in a couple of weeks time would end up printing about 75,000 face shields. Then we had the whole international part of this. And it blew my mind how how much this was needed internationally and how much this stopgap solution was needed and it wouldn't have happened if it weren't for a lot of amazing people around the world, a lot of amazing friends of mine. Joel Telling, the 3D printing nerd that just hit me up on Twitter the day after I posted my design the first time and said hey, could you make a design for the US market? We don't really have the hole punches you have over there. The fantastic people over at Matterhackers managed to get the US version that I made certified for use during that time by the National Institute of Health. The coming months after that, I talked with so many people all over the world that wanted to get into this and that wanted to, to supply their local communities, and their local hospitals, to local elderly care homes, schools. It was everything you could, could think would need a face shield, they had one. I think the, the current situation has shown us a lot about what it means to have means of local manufacturing, what it means to be not be dependent on very long supply chains for all, all of your important things. It shows us how valuable it can be to be able to make a short-run production or a stopgap manufacturing solution during a crisis time. And that crisis does not have to be a global pandemic. That crisis can be your container ship is late from Asia. I think during this pandemic, it really proven itself to be a very valuable tool that many of us that have been working with it for a while already knew. But making people see it as more than just a, a initial prototyping tool. I see people that do incredible things with 3D printing. Everything from printing boxes that goes on to motorcycles to making parts for robotics that's used in a factory environment. I see so many applications that you would never thought about just a few years ago, that are being enabled by this new knowledge. This new pair of glasses that the industry put on when they started seeing 3D printing as a viable tool rather than something hyped.
1: To learn more about Eric Sederberg, 3D Verkstan and the Protective Visor project, visit them online at 3dverkstan.se/protective-visor. Thank you very much for listening. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.